Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen. It is Friday, Interview Friday. Today, we're listening in on Tom Gardner's chat with Danny Meyer. Danny Meyer is the CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group. This is a restaurant group that includes Gramercy Tavern, Union Square Cafe, and of course, Shake Shack, the burger chain, and many other award-winning restaurants. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Tom Gardner, Motley Fool co-founder and CEO here in our New York City studios with one of my and one of our business heroes at the Motley Fool, Danny Meyer, I'm the CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group. And I'm just going to have you, Danny, um, give us some of the restaurants that you have started and are running over the last 27 years, 29 years? I'll try to be chronological about the whole thing. So Great. in 1985, 27 years old, I opened my first restaurant which I thought was not only going to be my first, but the only, and didn't mm. have any idea if I'd like it or if it would work, mm. called Union Square Cafe. Mm -hmm. So Union Square Cafe will be 29 later this year. Mm -hmm. And it took 10 years to open a second restaurant because mm. I just never aspired to that. Mm. But the second restaurant ended up being a pretty successful place called Gramercy Tavern, which will be 20 years old this summer. And then episodically, not with any business strategy in mind, but just kind of, I like the opportunities. Mm. I opened a few more places with colleagues over the years. One called Eleven Madison Park, mm. Tabla, an Indian restaurant, Blue Smoke, um, Jazz Standard, a place called The Modern at the Museum of Modern Art, a place called Shake Shack in Madison Square Park, which interestingly became the first time we ever did anything twice because five years after Shake Shack opened, mm. we opened a second Shake Shack and now Ten years into it, we have 47 of them globally. Mm -hmm. So Shake Shack, 47 locations. All of the other restaurants that you've created are unique. You haven't created Gramercy Tavern San Francisco. That's correct. Although Union Square Cafe, we have a license uh, version called Union Square Tokyo in Rapungi in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's now seven years old. And I think that that experience working with a partner overseas for the first time, mm -hmm. far away, we wanted it to be so far away that if it failed, mm. none of our guests would mm. theoretically mm. see it. Mm. But I think that really helped us to see the possibilities later on for Shake Shack. And then meanwhile, we opened another one-of-a-kind place, a, an Italian restaurant called Maialino, which mm. we love, and a place downtown in the um, Battery Park City area called North End Grill. Mm. So I want to talk about the culture of your organization. But before I do, I just you, you dropped in that you started the restaurants with colleagues. Um, does that mean that you you, you had commercial partnerships with friends that were coming and you were, you were doing 50-50? No, uh, or no, how, how, did, no. how did you finance the creation of these restaurants? Well, the first restaurant, Union Square Because you're, you're a private company. We are a private company. And the first restaurant was, was basically at the age of 27. I had worked uh, in my early 20s selling electronic tags to stop shoplifters for a, sm a small company called Checkpoint Systems, which had just gone public. Back then, they called it over-the-counter. I don't mm -hmm. think the, I don't think I had ever heard NASDAQ in my mm -hmm. life at that mm -hmm. point. And I became the top salesman in the company uh, for three straight years. I was making a lot of commissions mm -hmm. at the age of 22, 23, 24. And I had no one to support except me in a walk-up you know, apartment on the Upper East Side. So I just put all my money into their stock. And while I was there, mm -hmm. the stock pretty much quintupled. And 
after three or four years was of Checkpoint doing that. acquired by what, what happened to Checkpoint? I should this know. This is such a digression. I, I, I love it. Know, I got it. But okay, but it, the stock was great for you. The stock was the, great. Yeah. It went up from like a point and a half to twelve while mm -hmm. I was there, mm -hmm. and so I made significant money. Mm -hmm. And I took the money out. I was supposed to be a lawyer because I was a poli sci major, but mm -hmm. didn't want to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I did something that nobody did back then, uh, certainly with a liberal arts degree, which was to go open a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And so I put most of my savings into it, got a little bit from my mom, a little bit from an aunt and uncle, and I bought a 49-year-old vegetarian restaurant the last 12 years of their lease right on Union Square at mm -hmm. a time when it was $8 a square foot. Mm -hmm. And it didn't cost that much money. What was the Union Square like then as well? It wasn't the Union it was Square. It was a dangerous place. Mm -hmm. The reason that I wanted to go there, actually twofold. Number one was that um, there was this green market. It was two days a week back then. Mm -hmm. But I had trained myself to cook because that was the only way I could get the courage to tell my parents I was going to go into the restaurant business because it was sort of okay to be a chef, mm -hmm. not okay to be a restaurateur. Mm -hmm. And all the cooking I had done in France and Italy was connected to markets. And so when I saw that there was a farmer's market, that was reason number one. Mm -hmm. Number two was that, that a friend in the real estate business said, just wait, this neighborhood is going places. You're going to start to see all these ad firms coming downtown from Madison Avenue. Mm -hmm. You're going to start to see all the publishers coming down. And those are the two categories that entertain at business lunch. Mm -hmm. And they were right. Mm -hmm. And that became kind of the basis of, of Union Square Cafe, mm -hmm. farm fresh food, and people doing business launches. Mm -hmm. No, and I remember talking to Howard Schultz and saying to him, "It must be amazing to wake up in the morning and know that the world is coming to have coffee at your at your locations, and you've succeeded. It's worked. It's a huge and he, compliment." And he said, um, "Yes, that's nice, but it gets harder. Different problems, more locations, more people, more." And that's the biggest responsibility: is is more people. And I think mm -hmm. that we've really, really come to the conclusion year after year after year that along the spectrum of problem solving, the biggest problems you can possibly solve have to do with making your business a better place to work. Because mm. when it is, mm. the rest of the stakeholders kind of take care of themselves. Mm. I, I know that if you were to eat at any of our restaurants, you could not possibly have a better guest experience than our staff is having a work experience. Mm -hmm. They can fake it once or twice, mm -hmm. but to be a sustainable business, you will derive exactly as much joy mm -hmm. as the people who are working there are mm -hmm. deriving. What are some specific examples of ways that um, the lives of the people that come to work at your restaurants or in, in your corporate offices um, are engaging, inspiring, um, unique. I mean, the data shows that 70% of people who go to work in the U.S. are indifferent or downright negative. Um, we've described it, The Motley Fool is the canoe, where you've got um, 10 people in the canoe, three of them are rowing because they're passionate about what's happening at the standard organization. Five of them are watching, and two of them are trying to hit the rowers with their paddles. And, and that's, what's, that's what the Gallup data shows. And it, it has to be that one of the greatest competitive advantages that an organization could have would be to reverse that ratio. And, and, and ideally have 10 people rowing, of course. But how do you have more rowers than watchers and saboteurs? Well, the first thing is you've got to name exactly the story you just named. It, and I think that the sad thing is I don't think most companies name that. They are still thinking that, you know, as Adam Smith said a million years ago, 
the old technology is just think about the shareholder and you'll make more money because everything will happen, everything will fall in line. Mm. We think that the best way to make the most money for the most sustainable period of time for the shareholder is to, to be very, very cognizant of your story, which mm. is that if you really want to make the shareholder the happiest, mm. you have to believe in the power of both vicious cycles and virtuous cycles. And what a virtuous cycle does is it makes one good thing keep leading to something even better. Mm. I want really, really happy customers. Mm. And I have found through the years that the best way to do that is to put our customers second. Mm. I want really, really happy shareholders and investors, and we have a lot of them. Mm. Best way to do that is to put them fifth. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I need to have really happy investors is that without really happy investors, I can't have really happy employees. It's a cycle. Mm -hmm. When we have really happy investors, they ante up again. Mm -hmm. That provides growth opportunities financially, professionally. So you see an integration of the stakeholders of Complete your organization. integration. But you but it see has them to, ranked. I, I see that, that the, it has to start somewhere. I mm -hmm. believe that mm -hmm. so I, it I'm goes not a big employee, believer. <laughs> it goes employee or team member or colleague that you're working with. Customers, Customer. community in which we do business, mm -hmm. and we have a lot of communities. Mm -hmm. Fourth, our suppliers, the people we rely on to mm -hmm. have the best wine, the best tuna, the air conditioner company, mm -hmm. the company that supplies our light bulbs. I don't care who it is. Mm -hmm. They need to feel like they're on our team. They mm -hmm. need to feel like we're on their side. Mm -hmm. and uh, this is going to be an absurd question. Yeah. Um, why is community ahead of supplier? Just, just by way of example, you've given us the rank five, and so I've picked two right next to each well, other. Well, community works in so many different ways. The, the bottom line is, is that we're big believers that the biggest reason to give a hug is because you get one back. Mm -hmm. And when we hug our community, our community hugs us back mm -hmm. and is rooting for our success mm -hmm. in a big way. We need as much wind at our back and as much sun in our face as we mm -hmm. can have. Because mm -hmm. it's not good enough to say we are problem solvers for a living and we and we pick really good teams of people to solve problems with. We also need some luck. Mm -hmm. And so that's reason number one. We want the community to be on our side. But, but, but reason number two, which is even bigger, takes care of our first stakeholder, our, our employees, because we need to hire employees who have what we call a really high HQ, mm -hmm. hospitality quotient. We hire people who over and above how good they are at the thing they do. Mm -hmm. In your business, it might be picking stocks or mm -hmm. researching companies. Mm -hmm. In our business, it might be grilling a piece of salmon, or it might be knowing everything about wine from Sonoma Valley. Mm. That's what they do. Mm. But over and above that, we pick people whose emotional skill set is such that when they do that thing that they do, their greatest motivation is delivering pleasure to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And we think that in a day and age where the Internet's made it completely possible to rip off anybody, any innovative idea, within two seconds and therefore the shelf life of coming up with the better idea first is reduced. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing that is a competitive advantage is how you make your stakeholders feel. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. when we hire people with a high HQ and we give them opportunities and we fuel those opportunities to serve their community, to volunteer, to do something even bigger than they are, we're actually giving people the opportunity who are, they're already thoroughbreds but we're giving them an opportunity to run on the track and exercise their hearts. Mm. And you cannot do the kinds of things our employees do, like serving meals at hospice once a week and s serve somebody the last smile that, that they may have in their lives mm. and then come back to one of our restaurants and not understand 
the power of hospitality. Mm -hmm. So it's a there's two reasons we work in the community. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, we look at companies for investment almost. You've, you've laid out some of the key pages of my playbook as an investor. One of them, let's take the community stakeholder. I love to invest in businesses where the community is excited that that business is coming. You see that at Whole Foods, or you see it at Chipotle. You see it with an Apple store. We see that with Shake Shack all the and time. And you see it with Shake Shack. So, I mean, it, part of your story hurts me because you're a private company. Part of the Molly Fool story hurts some people because we're a private company. Why have you re remained private? What, what, would, what would Union Square Hospitality Group be if it were a public company? What, what would be the difference? Well, I don't know what the difference would be because we haven't done it. Mm -hmm. um, I am on the board of the Container Store, and, the, and I joined the board as the Container Store was going public. Mm -hmm. So I've seen it. Mm -hmm. I also was on the board of Open Table for eight years before Open Table went public. I'm still on the board of Open Table, so I've watched. I've watched that as well. My guess is that the the best reason to grow your company, regardless of how you fund it, so going public is one way of funding. Mm -hmm. But the best way to grow your company is if you believe that in the process of growing, you can actually advance your culture. Mm -hmm. If you fear that the act of growing will diminish your culture. That's a good reason not to grow. Mm -hmm. So now you get to the question, all right, I believe that that having the... More Shake Shacks will improve your culture. Do you believe that? I believe that we need more Shake Shacks mm -hmm. and we need the financial might to do an even better job of hiring awesome leaders, mm -hmm. training awesome leaders, communicating better. Mm -hmm. having, having the ability to communicate is one of the greatest ways to fuel a culture. Mm -hmm. It's a great Be container store, one of their... Core it's, it's one of their founding principles, but if you think about it, if every company in the world goes through periods of up and down morale, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's just human nature. We, we're not linear creatures. I can tell you from years of doing this that consistent with every down morale period that I've presided over, and I've presided over many, is a refrain among many of the people on our team saying, we don't communicate well enough around here mm -hmm. when things are bad. Mm -hmm. When things are good, it's, it's because by talking and building trust and letting people know what's coming next, people have an opportunity to prepare for it, to mm -hmm. think about it, to anticipate it, mm -hmm. and not to feel like it happened to them. Mm -hmm. the end so of the, the, natural, the natural process in a downturn would be to more, be more careful in communication because some of the consequences could seem anxiety-inducing for people. Your, your, your inclination is to pull back and try and solve problems rather than to go out and share the reality. And it's a really, really common inclination. And th sometimes there's good reasons for it. You know, there are uh, deals that we might be working on mm -hmm. with a landlord, um, with, with whatever. Mm -hmm. And there are times that it's not appropriate to talk about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you get into that mentality, which is that all the secret stuff happens in that office over there, and out here I'm a nice guy who says, so how was the weekend? How are your kids? Mm -hmm. And I don't really mean what I'm asking. Mm -hmm. Now you're starting to, to have a, a, gulf, a gulf between how people see, how they feel, what they trust, what they perceive, and, and so I think one of the things that great companies do more than others 
is that they have the courage to communicate more. Mm -hmm. So to your earlier question, the only reason that I would be concerned about a company being public would be if, if for any reason the, the laws of the land prevented the very kind of open communication mm -hmm. that had gotten the company to that awesome culture in the first place. Mm. And uh, To the extent that you can talk about this and perhaps, I mean, as a board member at the Container Store, I don't, I, not being a board member at a public company, I don't know what the constraints are. Is that a challenge for them at all? Because they were so profoundly open in communication as a private company with that as one of their founding principles. And then there are certain constraints that come into well, what I, information yeah. you can share between. I, I can absolutely share mm -hmm. because it's, it's, just, it's just my observation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's no inside information. Mm -hmm. But I think that the culture of the container store is so focused on the power of communicating mm -hmm. that, that they're even great at communicating to their team in the process of going public. Here are the kinds of things that we used to be able to communicate mm -hmm. that we won't be able to, but here are the things that we can still communicate always mm -hmm. and to the degree that, that you know, that life has changed for you and that's a challenge, we want to communicate about that. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's not necessarily about the thing that got communicated as much as the feeling of trust. Mm -hmm. And what great communication does is it builds trust. We've got a fantastic colleague on our team at Union Square Hospitality Group um, named Erin Moran, who came from Great Place to Work uh, Institute. She's now our chief culture officer. I met her at the Conscious Capitalism Conference in San Diego. She's fantastic. Yeah. And she's basically taught us something that's so obvious when you hear it, but that every single transaction between people who work for you, work on your team, colleagues, is either building trust or breaking trust. There's no in-between. Mm. And, and so even in the, the process of finding that there may be financial information that before we went public, we were not able, mm. or we were able to share, and now we're no longer able to share at the same time, that doesn't prevent us still from building trust mm -hmm. by talking about that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, have you ever considered the possibility that the greatest impact you could have on the world now is to help other organizations um, perform more openly with respect for the people that are working there and with a stakeholder orientation? I mean, what you're what you what you've been building is so extraordinary. But the principles that you've outlined in setting the table and in, in the interviews that I've read and viewed with you, they apply across so many industries. So I know there's a component of Union Square Hospitality Group where you're attempting to teach other organizations how to do hospitality better. Um, how much of that is a part of your, well, your I, dream I, for the future, that I, you're able I to change a, other organizations? <laughs> I gain a lot of joy from sharing. Hmm. I don't gain a lot of joy from telling. And even the whole style with which I wrote Setting the Table was, you know, the chapter you brought up is my favorite chapter, the one called The Road to Success is Paved with the Mistakes Well Handled, because I'd rather share what we've learned than tell you what you should do. Mm -hmm. The reason we set up our company called Hospitality Quotient, which is thriving right now, uh, is that after writing Setting the Table, a number of people, we had two different kinds of people calling us. One was people who read the book and wanted to road test it through all of our restaurants. Mm. And some of them said, gotcha, you, mm. you said you do this, mm. but I experienced <laughs> that. And that was hu uh, humiliating in a certain way, 
but helpful. Very, very helpful mm -hmm. because once you affirm that that you, I've have often a, wondered if a restaurant would have essentially a find a problem program, where it's like just point out anything that you didn't like, and there's there's maybe some reward a, system for a, it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that's actually been a really good thing mm -hmm. because when you put it out there, you mm -hmm. affirm that okay. that these are our ideals. Mm -hmm. You're inviting people to say, well, guess what? You didn't do it last time I went to this restaurant. Mm -hmm. And that's very helpful. The other kind of reaction we got were people who said, I've got to get more. I want to go deeper. Mm -hmm. And I ran out of time because I, I should be spending more time with our colleagues, mm -hmm. not more time on the road. Mm -hmm. And so one of our colleagues, uh, Susan Salgado, who had really been helping to teach this internally, mm -hmm. who's now um, on the board of New York's um, conscious capitalism um, chapter said, I want to start this company. And part of my job as an entrepreneur is to, is to respect that drive in other people. Mm -hmm. And so to your earlier question today, we are now finding that people who are in their 30s in our company who may have been with, with us for 10, 15, even 20 years, we've had people join us you know, at the age of 21, now want to start their own company, mm -hmm. but they want to do it within the umbrella of the Union Square Hospitality Beautiful. Group family. So we'll see another new concept mm. from the team at Blue Smoke, a, mm. a bar called Porchlight. We will see a new uh, Italian place from the team that started Maialino. Mm. Uh, I know that our team at Gramercy Tavern is interested in doing something. Once it's it just, starts, everyone starts to see a path And that's a really, that's exciting. what I call a virtuous cycle. Mm. Have you ever heard thing. of Ricardo Semler? Does that name mean anything yeah. to you? He wrote two books, Maverick, Yes, and, that and I have is Maverick a Brazilian, Brazilian company, Semco, and I think they have 100-plus subsidiaries, 3,000 employees, so 30 people per company. Virtually all of them have been, or many of them have been started by employees that have brought the idea to the parent holding company, and they've let me get back. Let me get back to your earlier question, if I can. I've joined some public company boards. And I do it almost for my own education. The reason that each one of them has wanted me to be there was to help with the very kind of things you were just asking about, which is we're a human organization. doesn't matter what we're selling. How can we line up our stakeholders in the right way and, and really get this virtuous cycle going? But I join the boards because there's so many things I can learn from, from being on a board with fantastic people serving on it. And at the end of the day, I have so much more work that I need to do as a leader within our own company that my main aspiration is to make us constantly a better place to work mm -hmm. and a better member of our communities. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think about succession at your organization? As an investor, um, when Howard Schultz steps down from Starbucks for a while, when he comes back, it's awesome. Um, when Michael Dell disappears from Dell for a while, runs into problems, and obviously now they've taken themselves private. Um, you know, concerns about Warren Buffett at Berkshire. So what about a Danny Meyerless um, Union Square Hospitality Group 57 years from now? 57 years you know, from medical now, technology. I'm going to be rolling in a grave somewhere. I don't somewhere. think that's true. I think I, you strike me as being very healthy in your Maybe 50s. you can find a way to freeze me and cryovac <laughs> me, but I don't think the world needs that. We actually do think about it a lot because going, going back to my work on public boards, I I tend to be asked to be on the comp committee because often that connects to culture as well. Mm -hmm. And so part of my job is to help other companies think about succession. And so I do the same thing with my own company. Mm -hmm. And we've really been on a, 
on a strict succession planning gen next diet mm -hmm. uh, really for the last three years or so. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons that we're giving more people more responsibility. Studies, you don't need to see Dan Pink or read his book mm -hmm. to understand this, but if we take a, a poll of our team members and say, among the things you'd like to do even more of here that would make this an even better place to work, almost universally people say, it's not that I want to work more hours, but during the hours that I do come to work, I want to be able to contribute even more. Mm. You hired me because I've got stuff to give. I don't really want to just do stuff because my boss told me to. Mm. I'll, I'll do all that, but what I really want to do is use my heart, use my mind, use my imagination. And so that's how leaders emerge also. Mm -hmm. um, that's how innovation emerges. Mm -hmm. And so that's fun. Mm. So I can't wait to see that happen. If I asked you to rank these three traits about you as a leader, how would you rank them? Innovator, motivator, capital allocator. Innova <laughs> innovator, motivator, capital allocator. Mm -hmm. In that order. In that order. Mm -hmm. um, I have two restaurant-related ideas that I'm going to use the last minute of our conversation to try out on you. I want you to shoot them full of holes. I'm happy to have these my, my ideas knocked out. You want to open one of these? Here we go. One, I'm not, well, one of them is not an opening idea. It's an open table idea and a all the Danny Meyer restaurants, all of which I love, idea. Couldn't I, with technology, pre-order my entire meal so that when I arrived, like on open table, I, I fill out, this is the salad I want, the drink I want, the meal I want, so that when I arrive, the meal is already there. The beginnings of it is already there. It would turn the tables more rapidly, and I would, I would not have that time. Obviously, for, you don't have to do it. If you want to have that conversation where you're waiting for the appetizer to come, great. But if you wanted to sit down and pre-order your entire meal and I, sit down. I think you could do that. I, I do think that there is an element that people do enjoy mm -hmm. being hosted mm -hmm. by a good server. Mm -hmm. I think in the fast casual world, that pre-order idea is a great idea. I mm -hmm. think in fine dining, people expect a custom experience. The one area where I think that that could be really useful, and we do see people do this all the time, um, is to not have to spend five minutes with their nose buried in a wine list. And, mm -hmm. and so I think that a really good innovation would be for if you knew who the people are who always order wine, and we know that, mm -hmm. and we have technology who can help us understand mm -hmm. that, we can push the wine list to people earlier, and then they capture more time with their guests. I think an innovation that Open Table is really focused on right now, and it's just started mm -hmm. in beta in San Francisco, is automatic payment. Because there is a point, mm -hmm. I've been hosted now by my waiter, right. the, I ordered the, the all my food. The period of waiting for and the transaction yeah. is not a waiters delightful hosting experience. That's right, everyone. and waiters are not perfect at reading your mind. Some people mm -hmm. don't want to be rushed. Mm -hmm. Some people do want to mm -hmm. rush. So the opportunity to get up and leave whenever you want to and mm -hmm. push a button yeah. to leave whatever kind of tip you want yeah. to, yeah, and then you're out of there, I think mm -hmm. is gonna, that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's my restaurant concept. It's two floors. Everyone... There are a couple seatings in the evening, and you sit down to your dinner, and afterwards, there's a party, uh, a drink, with everyone that you've had dinner with. So it's an opportunity to, it would be expected that you would get up and go to someone else's table and say, hi, this is who I am, nice to meet you. I think you should do that. 
I think it'll fail, just so you know. I think you should do it. <laughs> I don't know that I would argue for two floors, though, because uh -huh. you're doubling your expense. Because uh -huh. invariably, you're going to have plumbing on two floors, which is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You're going to get involved with, with you know, issues mm -hmm. of disability on two floors. You're going to get involved with um, somebody's going to invariably slip on the stairs. Do your idea, but do it on one floor. Perfect. How many people pitch you ideas throughout a given week, month, and year? A lot, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly the ideas we get pitched are from developers who right. want to have mm -hmm. one of our restaurants in one of their business, one of their buildings, which could drive some other business. It could be a hotel, it could be a museum, it could be a, a business, an office building. Mm -hmm. And that feels good. It could be a baseball stadium, it mm -hmm. could be a park. Mm -hmm. And we've even heard from a church. Mm -hmm. um, to close, I saw the interview that you did with Jim Cramer with the Danny Meyer Hospitality Index. Um, and the performance of your investment ideas since 2009, which were based on whether or not, well, a stakeholder-focused approach to evaluating those companies, maybe primarily about hospitality. Um, what are some of your favorite companies now? I mean, what, what are the, the businesses that you look at and say, um, they get it, they're putting the employee first, um, they're delighting their customers, um, communities love it when they show up, and they're not trying to squeeze their suppliers for every dollar. They're trying right. to build healthy supplier relationships. And they're going to reward their shareholders. If they get those first four right, it's, it's a very low probability that the long-term performance commercially won't delight the shareholders. So I'm still a big fan of the ones that I put on that list. Mm -hmm. And I haven't taken the time to, to review it and revive it recently, but, but I will. And I'm not trying mm -hmm. to duck your question. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have joined the board of the Container Store if I didn't feel that the Container Store is a company just like that. Mm -hmm. um, they were private, so I couldn't put them on the list. Mm -hmm. One that I'd put on the list in a second, if it were ever a public company, would be uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Mm -hmm. Because I think that mm -hmm. they do this brilliantly. And you can feel the difference. Mm -hmm. You can feel the human energy. Mm -hmm. Think Just think about any brand that you would actually be proud carrying their bag when you walk down the street mm -hmm. because of what it would say about you and your principles. Mm -hmm. Think about any brand where when you walk in, you feel good over and beyond how good their product is. Mm -hmm. They're doing that well. Mm -hmm. But everything's become a commodity. Is the Enterprise car really that much better than a Hertz car or an Avis car? Mm -hmm. I doubt it, mm -hmm. as long as it gets me from here to there. But how did it feel when I rented it? Mm. And there's a culture of these kind of companies. So I'm going to spend some more time because I need to come up with a new market basket. You know, a big breakthrough for me as an investor was just um, talking to an investor in uh, Seattle, Washington about a dozen years ago who said that he spends more than 60% of his time, he manages around a billion dollars, he spends more than 60% of his time on qualitative items. He's, he's looking to quantify them a little bit, but like the glass door rating. Um, yes. But, but he's looking at the non-shareholder-focused earnings numbers more than half the time and trying to evaluate whether to make a long-term investment. Maybe and the numbers... really smart. The, the, the easy metrics anybody can do. Hmm. What I love about focusing on businesses that are building culture is that it allows you to take what you feel and turn it into money hmm. in a meaningful way that changes lives. And in, in a day and age when your, you know, your smartphone can copy anything out there, the hospitality quotient is something that this can't, I can't take a picture of how something feels. And therefore, when a company has it, it becomes just 
the most solid competitive advantage you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I've learned so much, uh, Danny, from you without getting to spend this much time with you, except right now, I mean, the opportunity to read Setting the Table, which is a wonderful book, and just studying how you think and, and making culture a priority at our company and our investment approach. So thank you very much for spending the time oh, with this us. This is great. Thank right you. On. And thanks yeah. for the great work you do for so many investors. That is our show for today and for the week. As always, you can tweet at us. We are at TMF Financials, or you can send us an email, WTMI at fool.com. Matt and I will be back on Monday. We will see you then. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.